I have one announcement while everybody's finding their seat, and that is that uh, the Lord took home Betty Smith yesterday, sent uh, his angels to escort her to heaven. Uh, for those of you who probably uh, don't remember Betty, but Betty uh, worked in the nursery a lot and did some other things here. She was one of the founding members of West Houston Bible Church, and due to health reasons, she has not been here for some time. And her memorial service will be on Saturday, May the 8th at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And at 3 o'clock, there will be a reception in the fellowship hall uh, following the service. And so, um, did they talk to you, Jackie? Good. Are you on? Uh, I've got to check with someone else. Oh, okay. All right. Okay, so that's, that's the only announcement. But we have a lot to cover tonight, and I just hope, you know, I'm going to lead everything up to, to the conclusion. Sometimes I get there, and, the conclu- and it's nine, uh, 8.45, and I haven't hit the conclu- don't have time for the conclusion. So hopefully we'll get there tonight. All right. Uh, cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Now, that word moved indicates... You don't know what that means to be shaken in your faith. He, w- In other words, he is going to take care of us and provide for us. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Uh, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Before we get started, let's bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that we can be prepared spiritually, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for these promises that we have throughout your word that you are a hedge around us, you protect us, you're a shield, you're a tower, you're a fortress, you protect us in every situation. Too often we interpret that to mean that you're going to protect us the way we think we ought to be protected and provided for, but you will sustain us spiritually. Our, our, Our faith in you will not be shaken. We trust in you and you sustain us. Father, we're thankful for that, and Father, we're thankful for all that we have in the Scripture that teach us about every issue in life, and that we need to learn how these warnings are related to current events, and especially those events that impact us personally. And Father, especially as we go through this sort of a chapter that's difficult with these these false teachers, and uh, Father, we have this going on all around us. It's amazing how how horrific the so-called evangelical church has become. Father, we pray that you'd give us insight into your word and that we might be always grateful for uh, the pastors, the teachers, the seminary professors that we have had that have stayed the course to stand firm for the truth of your word, a literal, consistent interpretation of the scriptures and application that flows from that literal interpretation of your word. Above all, we thank you that we have God, the Holy Spirit, who fills us with your word. He helps us to understand it, 
It may not be easy, but he enables us to understand your word because he is the one who revealed your word. So, Father, we thank you for that, and we pray that we might understand the things that we're covering this evening. In Christ's name, amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to Second uh, Peter. Second Peter chapter 2, which is the chapter on false teachers. Much of Second Peter is really about false teachers, and it even goes into the uh, goes into the third chapter, but we're going to kind of pick up and review a little bit with what uh, I covered and ended with last time, but I just want to make sure that we get all this context together. So we're going to look tonight at false teachers and evangelicalism. And so we're going to get into some current trends and people and issues that are around, and you can draw your own conclusions from some of the things that we look at. So just to get us back into an understanding of the structure and the context, that this chapter from verse 1 to verse 22 is all about false teachers. First, there's the certainty that false teachers will come at the beginning of the uh, chapter, and then the destructiveness of their deception. And so through all of this section, we have all of these various words dealing with deception and destruction. And even when we get down into our passage where we are dealing with um, uh, these false teachers in verses 12, 13, and 14, we have words like corruption and perish and... um, these are all related. So it's just talking about the end result of this is is just so destructive. It's self-destructive, number one, and it is destructive to others because you are teaching them. They are being taught lies by these false teachers. So we have the destructiveness of deception in 2, 1B to 3, and then from 4 through 10A, the certainty of judgment, and that is all summarized And where we uh, were ending last time in verse 9, that the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. And in that particular verse, the godly, as I pointed out last time, is in contrast to the unjust, that is the unjustified. And so we know that he's contrasting believers with unbelievers. And so I'll pick up there. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of, and I would think it's better to translate this out of testing. These are testing situations. And to reserve the unjust, that is the unbeliever, the unjustified, under punishment for the day of judgment. We studied that last time going to Revelation 20, that that's talking about the great white throne judgment. But another thing to be aware of as we look at this word, which is perasmos, and I touched on it some on Tuesday night in Judges. There's a certain overlap in some of the material here that is helpful because God left the Canaanite tribes alive because of the failure of the uh, of the uh, Israelite tribes to fully eradicate the Canaanites, God said that he would leave them alive to be a thorn in their flesh. And 
that he that they would be a snare to them that word snare is a very important word because a snare is a trap and what brings the animal or the victim into the trap is some sort of bait something that is attractive something that draws him in and the word for that that drawing them in or baiting the trap is a word we'll see in a couple of different verses tonight, and so we see that that is part of the background. That this is uh, the 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 godly are those who are surrounded by this ungodliness of the world, and we're reminded of James chapter four verse uh, four, which says that friendship with the world is hostility to God. I wish I could tattoo that on the inside of every believer's brain. That is a verse that we so easily forget because we just kind of want to get along and we really want to make sure that we're not too disruptive. At least that's the pattern that we see from a lot of, a lot of church leaders. We, they, they're not combative. Those of you who've been listening to the church history classes on Monday night, Luther was just like that. He was very combative. And that was his personality, and he had a fight in front of him. Ulrich Zwingli from Zurich was also that way. In fact, he died in battle. But those men were assailed from every side, and they had to be mentally tough, and they had to have the strong convictions of the truth of God's Word to withstand those that wanted them to take the easy path. That's the one of the many tests, one of the ways in which the trap is baited. And so this word temptation has that idea of an external test as well as the internal attraction that is created by the test to our sin nature because our sin nature is just so prone to, to its attraction to the bait that we take the bait before we even think about it. It's just such a, a natural inclination or habit that, that we have. So the word is used for the two different sides of that. And in the testing side, it's the attempt to prove or demonstrate or show the character of a person, how it has changed because of the word of God. So we have this in James 1, 2 through 4, passage I've touched on many times. My brethren, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. And that's the word perosmos, when you encounter various tests. It would be the first meaning down below, various tests. Then we have this participle that's really a causal participle. The way you're able to fulfill the command to count it joy is because you know something. Not because you feel something, not because you're on an emotional high, not because you're so uplifted by the wonderful worship service, but because you have learned the Word of God. You know something. You know that the testing of your faith, and that's a different word, this is a word that shows, that talks about the evaluation to show what's positive. It's, it's the verb is dokimazo. And that always has to do with trying to show what is of value. It's not trying to show how bad we are, where we're weak, or where we fail. It is showing how we are good, how we're uh, improving. 
when you look at the passage on the judgment seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, 16 and following, it talks about this, that, that what's exposed to the judgment seat of Christ is not the wood, hay, and straw. That's burned up. What's exposed is the gold, silver, and precious stones. That's, that, that represents what we have done uh, walking by the Spirit, what the Spirit's produced in our life. And so the point is to show what is of value, not to show where the failures are. God is not uh, concerned about showing everybody what our sins are because Christ paid for those sins. He's demonstrating what we have that is of eternal value. So this is the testing. It's an objective testing of our faith. Now, that's not our ability to trust, although that's part of it, but it is what is trusted. Often the word faith is put in to a passage in Scripture to show what we believe. For example, we'll uh, sometimes talk about a person's faith. It's the content of their faith. It's what they believe. So what is the uh, faith of an Episcopal? What's the faith of a Presbyterian? What's the faith of a Buddhist? There we're talking about the content of faith. So what this verse is talking about is knowing that uh, these tests are designed to evaluate our ability to take what we have learned from the Word of God and apply it to these various situations and circumstances, and that by uh, passing the test, it produces not patience, but endurance, steadfastness, hupomones, which literally, literally means to stay under something, to abide in the situation by applying the Word. And then James goes on to say, but let endurance have its maturing work. See, that by, by meeting the test, claiming the promise, trusting in God, and applying the word that we have learned, then that strengthens us. That's the answer to that prayer that we're studying on Sunday morning in Ephesians chapter uh, three sixteen to pray that the, that we would be strengthened with might through the Holy Spirit, and so uh, that's the maturation process. With the result that you're perfect again, it's not perfect in the sense of flawlessness. It it has the idea of of maturity and completion lacking nothing. And of course, the next verse goes on to say, "But if any of you lacks." See, lacks what? Lacks knowledge on how to apply the word to your test. Let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally and without reproach. So God gives you the answer, uh, strengthens you in that process. But what I'm interested in looking at today is the connection between these three verses and uh, James 1.12. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man who endures, hupomene again, who endures testing. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Notice the in there. Well, how does love fit into this? Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. The one who loves me keeps my commandments. All through Deuteronomy, God says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Jesus said the same things to his disciples. I've heard there's people that we know, I don't know exactly who they are, but I keep hearing this, that there are some pastors within our framework that are saying you don't teach commands. Well, Jesus certainly did. He said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. So when he had been approved, 
Uh, he will receive the crown of life. That's the reward which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Those who love him keep his commandments. And then verse 13 says, let no one say, so this is a warning. So don't get caught in this trap that when you're tested, blame God for it. I just keep failing this test. If God really loved me, he wouldn't let me get in these situations. Now, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. See, now he's using the same word, but he's using it with the other meaning. He's using it with that meaning of uh, being enticed to sin. God does not entice us to sin. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. A test is different from a temptation which is designed to bait the trap to entice you. Verse 14, he says, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires, that's his le- the lust patterns in your sin nature, and enticed. Now here's our word, deliazo, and it means to bait a trap. That's its literal meaning, to bait a trap or to entice someone. So what happens is inside of a lot of tests, there's a trap. The trap has some bait in there that is attractive to us, and there are too many people who fall for that. And in our passage in Second Peter chapter 2, the bait has to do with money, sex, it has to do with uh, popularity, it has to do with power, and all of these things that work together. And that's what we see as we go through the passage there in Second uh, uh, Peter 2 is how all of these false teachers are focused on these things. They're all mixed in there together. It's, it's power, it's money, it's sex, it's approbation, and all of these different things. So that's, that's the warning. And then James 1.15 says, when desire has conceived, that is, when desire takes the bait, it gives birth to sin. So the important thing there is just having the desire isn't sin. It's if you do something with that desire, if you try to meet that desire in some way, that's when sin takes place. So you have a structure here. You have a desire, and you have the bait. And so you look at it, and you go, boy, wouldn't that be nice? You haven't sinned yet. You're on the edge. You're on the cusp. And you say, well, I'll just confess it. I know nobody here ever rationalized like that, but that's what a lot of people do. Sometimes they confess it beforehand, and we call that prebound, but that's another story. Anyway... Uh, So when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, which it is full grown, it brings forth death. Now, this isn't physical death, and it's not spiritual death. We're born spiritually dead, but when we trust in Christ, we're made alive together in Him. We never lose that life. So we have eternal life. But when we sin, we are separated from our fellowship with God, our walk by the Holy Spirit. And so this is a, 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 we call this carnal death or temporal death where we're acting like a spiritually dead person. 
And so that happens with a lot of a lot of Christians. They act like a spiritually dead person because they keep keep taking the bait. The other promise I've mentioned in this is 1 Corinthians 10:13, no temptation has overtaken you, no test has overtaken you except as is common to man. Categorically they're common. Maybe every single detail isn't the same, but generally we've all experienced losses of some kind. And so there's the uh, uh there's the temptation to uh, gets all self-absorbed and have a pity party, but but whether it's losing a child or losing a spouse or losing a job or losing a pet or just losing uh, a competition, they all involve very similar things. So we've all been involved in different types of losses, just as one example. Uh, there's no testing is overtaken you such as is common to man, but God is faithful. Again, we ought to have that tattooed on the inside of our eyelids. God is faithful, period. He never changes. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted or tested beyond what you are able. Now, that's not a period, that's a comma. I've said this several times recently. But with the test will also make the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So there's that perseverance again, that endurance from hupomone, that you can uh, bear up under it. So no matter what's happening, we have to understand that Satan is baiting the trap and one of the traps that he uses comes from false teachers who sound good, look good. They're very slick. Uh, they have a lot of people following them. And so that it seems like they are, uh, are someone to pay attention to when, in fact, they are uh, slipping the rat poison into the chocolate cake. Now, back to our passage in 2 Peter 2.9. The Lord knows how to deliver the believer, let's just put it that way, the believer out of testing and to reserve the unjust, the unrighteous, the unbeliever under punishment for the day of judgment. And then he, and, and especially, verse 10, especially those who walk according to the flesh. So look at 9. The unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those those ungodly who walk according to the flesh, that's the sin nature, in the lust of uncleanness. And this is a word I talked about last time, and it has the idea of the uncleanness of the sewer. So they are going to take you through the sewer of uncleanness, spiritual uncleanness, and they despise authority. They're presumptuous. That means they're arrogant and they're hostile. They're bold in their attack on authority. They are self-willed. They are driven by all of the arrogant skills. They are uh, self-willed. They are... uh, uh, self-absorbed, and they uh, do whatever it is that they want, so they are self-indulgent, and then they are self-justified, and then they are self-deceived or self-deluded, 
and then they create themselves as their own idol and they are self-deified. That's just the cycle of the arrogant skills. And so those who walk according to the flesh is an unusual way of putting it. It is not uh, the same as what we find in Romans 8, talking about the believer who is peripateo, walking step by step according to the sin nature. But this is the, the, the uh, preposition apizo, which means to follow after. And so they're being led by their sin nature. And that's what it talk, what, how it should be translated, especially those who are led uh, by the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. So this is the sin nature diagram we used last time. Everything's driven by these lust patterns. There's a lot of different lust patterns. You have, everybody always thinks of power lust or sexual lust or money lust, but there's lust for pleasure. Uh, there, there's lust for uh, uh, power. There's lust for recognition. There's lust for uh, people and social recognition. There's, there's lust for uh, just people paying attention to you, approbation lust, all of these different things. Now, the lust pattern goes in the diagram. It goes in opposite directions, but sometimes it combines them, which is really strange because what you see with a lot of false teachers is they will combine a, what I will call a pseudo-asceticism. Now, what do I mean by asceticism? This is sort of a holier-than-thou mentality that they've got it all together and they're walking with Jesus and everything is wonderful and they've got it all together. And there's this, this picture of their, their, their holiness. And then on the other side, when you pull back the covers, they're in bed with, uh, and you've got the people in, who are into homosexuality and they're into uh, having multiple affairs. I went to a conference one time and was teaching on First John 1, 9, and uh, uh, one of the older pastors said, you can't teach on that because people use it around here, use that for a license. And there are men in this. Uh, in there, there were men in your class who have three different women stashed in this hotel. See, that's it's money, sex, power, and fame. Those are the big four. So that's uh, that's uh, the combination of asceticism with uh, licentiousness. That me- means you just have a license to sin. It's taking grace too far as Paul tries to avoid in Romans 6, 1. Shall I sin more so that grace may abound? That's licentiousness. Like, oh, because I'm saved, I have a license to sin because I'm still going to go to heaven. Lasciviousness it has the same... The root of lascivious comes from a Latin word that means license. So they're, they're synonyms. And antinomianism is the idea that I'm against law. There's no rules. I can do whatever I want to. The, the church has been plagued with antinomians down through the centuries. So you can end up in moral degeneracy or immoral degeneracy. So everything's driven by this desire. And that desire is what is attracted to the to the bait. We have warnings in passages such as 1 Peter 1.14, 
and not to conform ourselves to the former lusts. We're not to conform ourselves to the world. We're not to conform ourselves to the former lusts and ignorance, but we are to live a distinct life. You are the one who called you as holy. You also be holy or distinctive in all your conduct. Uh, the fleshly lust war against the soul, First Peter 2.11. Now, I'm not going to go through all the verses I went through last time, but that gives us a, a basic reminder of what's going on here. And then when we get into these passages that we're talking about in verse uh, 10 and 11, I've made a list of these characteristics. They're controlled by the lust patterns of the sin nature. It's an uncleanness. It's the word that's used is like walking through a sewer. So if they're controlled by sin nature, you have so many. I, I've often wondered that, that you hear the horrible big five sins that every pastor seems to mention, and they're all overt sins. And yet the pastor that's, that's often talking about these things in a, very con, con, in a manner of great condemnation it's just filled with arrogance, and nobody talks about how arrogant so many pastors are. And it's amazing. It's one of the greatest sins to affect and infect pastors is they can become uh, so arrogant. They're the only ones who truly understand the word. Uh, they, this, these false teachers despise authorities. And the word there for authorities is the word doxa, which is the word normally translated glory. So it's talking about uh, the glories of their power, the glories of their authority. And so they're despising all authorities, including elect angels and demons. They're presumptuous. They're bold. They don't know they're, they're not properly authority-oriented they are self-willed and arrogant, and they're not afraid to speak evil, to revile. To, the word in the, in the Greek is blasphemos, which simply means to revile or to slander against evil authorities, which is these evil glories, which refers to demons. And they are just uh, loaded up on their, uh, their sin nature. Now we come to verse 12. But these, these who? This is a fascinating term because the word these is a masculine demonstrative pronoun. There I go using grammar again. A demonstrative is this or that, these or those. And these in Greek can be masculine, feminine, or neuter, depending on the noun it's describing. So the noun here is masculine. So it's talking about or assuming that these are male false teachers. Now there's another reason that we know that these are male false teachers, and this is seen down in verse 14, where the opening phrase of verse, verse 14 is having eyes full of adultery. And what that literally says in the Greek is eyes filled. And in the imagery there is eyes that are looking. They're looking for an adulteress. It's a feminine form of the noun there. So they're looking for an adulteress. 
So that's, that indicates that also that these are, are men, are assumed to be men. That doesn't mean every false teacher is a man because there have been a lot of women false teachers uh, down through the years and, and including today. But these men, and then it says like natural brute beasts, which I find to be an unusual translation, and that is the Greek word a-logos. Now, what does that A at the beginning of the word mean? I've said this so many times. That A is called an alpha privative, privative meaning first. Okay, that's the technical term. It's the, it's the Greek way of expressing what our prefix UN expresses. And so it negates the noun. So what it means is they are without speech, without words. They are irrational. Logos is the word from which we get our word logic, which is the basis for rationality. So these are like these, these brute beasts or these irrational animals. And the word for, uh, that is translated uh, made, um, that these like brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed is the Greek verb genao, from which we get our word to be born. When you are looking at those beget passages all the way through Matthew chapter 1, and then you, th- that's the verb that's there is to give birth to. So this should be translated like natural, irrational beasts born for capture. Now, it doesn't say that, that uh, made to be caught and destroyed, because that made to be caught and destroyed implies that they're verbs. But it is made for the purpose. That's the uh, Greek grammar there is very specific. It is the way you express purpose. So these beasts are made for the purpose of capture and destruction. That doesn't make PETA very happy. They would be out here having a protest against all Christians if they understood the literal meaning of that. Uh, God is, has created these irrational animals for the purpose of feeding human beings in one sense. They are to be captured and they are to be destroyed. And so this is a comparison of false teachers to these irrational animals. There's a point of comparison or similarity. That's the word like. Going back to probably seventh grade English grammar, you learn about figures of speech. You have similes and metaphors. A simile is when there's a stated comparison you know, he, the, it is white as snow. The as tells you that's the stated comparison, white as snow. And so here you have uh, like a beast. That's the comparison. So what, what is it? You have a lot of characteristics of false teachers, and you have a lot of ca- characteristics of irrational beasts, What's the point of comparison? That's what we're going to look at. And it has to do with this next phrase. They're, they were made or uh, are born for capture, 
and destruction. Now, this word Thora shows up twice in this verse, and both places I have translated it as as destruction, even though the last word in the New King James is translated corruption. It is the same word, so I've translated it the same way because that it helps us understand what the point of comparison is. It can mean corruption just as the other word uh, uh, that we have, other words in here can also mean corruption. So the point here is this comparison. So I created this chart. On the left, you have false teachers who ridicule what they don't understand, and they are ridiculing these glories, these powers, these demonic powers and angelic powers, and will in their destruction be destroyed. So their destruction is just as certain as the fact that natural, irrational animals are born for the purpose of capture and destruction. The point of comparison is that both are destroyed. And so when they get involved with false teachers, the end result is this destruction. So when we uh, retranslate that, and get our get it together we read but these men like natural irrational animals born for capture and destruction uh, do not under comprehend what they are uh, blaspheming they are uh, made for destruction and to be destroyed they will it's translated they will utterly perish in their own corruption but it is literally they will uh, be destroyed in their own uh, corruption. And, so it's not just enough that they will be destroyed in their own corruption, they will also receive the wages of unrighteousness. They will receive the ages, the wages of unrighteousness. So they've earned something through their particular sins. Uh, they receive the rages of, cons- of unrighteousness. And then we have the word as. What does that tell you? It's a point of comparison. It's a simile. They're drawing a parallel between two things. They receive the wages of righteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. So they are compared to those who party in the daytime wide open. They're not hiding their sins. It's very obvious what their sins are, and they are not ashamed of them. Those who carouse in the daytime are like that. And then Peter says they are spots and blemishes. Now these are the same words that you find in reference to Jesus Christ who redeemed us by his blood like a lamb without spot or blemish. So there's a contrast here between these false teachers who who are spots and blemishes and Christ who is the lamb of God who is without spot or blemish. And they are carousing in what? In their own deception. See, they are self-deceived. That's part of the that arrogant cycle that I've talked about so much. They carouse in their own deceptions because they started off feeding their self-absorption 
and they were self-indulgent and they've self-justified and they've just built this cycle over and over and over again until they are uh, they are the poster child for arrogance and their pictures right next to the word arrogance in the dictionary. Uh, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. So they are coming and they are involved in the meetings of the local church. They're mixed in and they're socializing with the members of the local church, members of the congregation, because they want to eventually get their their hooks into them and bait their traps to pull people away. The word that is um, uh, translated deception there is a word, uh, apate, which just means uh, deception. It means deceit. And so they are intentionally uh, lying. Their lives are, their eyes are full of lies, it states elsewhere. But here, in verse 14, it says their eyes are full of adulteresses. The Greek word is a feminine noun here in feminine form instead of the masculine form. If it was masculine, it would be adulterers. But here it is in the masculine, I mean in the feminine plural. And they unceasingly sin. So the New King James translates it, they, they cannot cease from sin. I think this is a little more graphic. They unceasingly sin. They, they are just sinning all the time. And then we have the participle, which indicates probably means or manner. And it's the idea of uh, by enticing unstable souls which is a very good translation. Those who are unstable souls are those who do not have the truth of God's word in them uh, strongly enough to be stable, to not be seduced by the enticements in the trap. And then it says they, referring to the false teachers, have a heart-trained And the Greek word here is from the verb gumnazo, which is where we get our word gymnasium. Gumnazo was where the athletes would go to train and would be and to discipline themselves uh, in their training for the games, for the Olympic games. And so, uh, when it says this, they have a heart trained. It is like the discipline of an athlete. It has become an ingrained habit pattern trained in covetous practices. So we know that coveting is a form of idolatry, according to Paul in Colossians chapter 3. Uh, greed is idolatry or covetousness is idolatry. And so they are, uh, this is deeply ingrained in them. This is a habit pattern. And they are accursed children. So this brings in the idea that they are, uh, that is their form of their, their life. They are under God's judgment. Now, 
that takes us through verse 14. And I want to stop here for a minute and talk about what we've seen in terms of the basic characteristics. They're arrogant. They're driven by lust. There's indications, uh, strong indications of uh, sexual impropriety, uh, uh, adultery that is mixed in with their false teaching and that they are involved in a strong uh, social life, carousing, partying, which would involve all of the sexual infidelities that are going on here. And that this is often what will uh, eventually be characterized in, uh, in these false religions. Now, it's so interesting that when you look at the history of religion in the world, that Satan has always seemed to manage to bring uh, illicit sex together with religion. He's constantly trying to uh, combine those things. For example, on Tuesday night, we talked about uh, the different uh, uh, fertility religions in the ancient Near East. All through the ancient world, uh, the, these fertility religions were popular. They were popular in Greece. They were popular in Egypt. They're popular in uh, uh, Phoenicia and Canaan and Syria and Babylon and all throughout the ancient world. And so they, the, the people who were involved in the worship of uh, Baal and Asherah had, one, had two basic drives that were being satisfied by these fertility religions. Fertility is just another word for prosperity and productivity because they were in an agricultural culture and they wanted to have, uh, they wanted to have an abundance of crops. They wanted to be able to make a lot of money and have a nice house and all the trappings that go with it like, like most people do. And so that was part of it. And they would go into these uh, temples and they would uh, entice the gods or convince the gods to make them prosperous through going through sexual acts that would be then in return imitated by the gods who would make them prosperous. They would have more lambs, they would have more calves, all of these other things related to fertility and prosperity. And so the priests and priestesses in the in these uh, temples that the Canaanites had and that all these other groups had, uh, these priests and priestesses were prostitutes, every one of them. And that's one of the words that is used for them in the Old Testament is uh, the, uh, the word Kadashah. And you know the word Kadash because that is a word we've talked about a lot. It's the word for holy. And most people get the idea that holy means morally upright. It doesn't mean morally upright, because a form of that word, kadashah, and a, is the feminine, and there's a masculine form, and those refer to the cultic prostitutes in the fertility religions. And so one of the big attractions was not only that if you worshipped these fertility gods, then maybe you would have more crops, you would have bigger flocks and herds, 
but you could go and have sex with the uh, temple prostitutes. And so that was a very big part of these ancient Near Eastern uh, religions. And so that has always been in the background, and you see that today um, in, in a lot of the things that are going on in what I would consider to be fringe groups of Christians. And I want to touch on this. One of the things I've thought about it as I've gone through this is just to give you some ideas of similar type false teaching that goes on today and and these groups that are attracted to these false teachers. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because it's not my purpose to be lurid and to tell tales on people, but since everything I'm going to say is clearly public knowledge, I want to tie some things together for everyone so that you know what's really going on in the devil's world around you. So what we're going to do is start with some background, and we're going to start with the history of the Pentecostal charismatic movement. Most of you have no idea what I'm talking about because that's not in your background, but there are a lot of people that listen that have come out of the Pentecostal charismatic background. Uh, some may even still be involved in it, and I just want to go through a quick overview so we can understand how we got where we are, history is important, and what the roots of all this are. So we're going to start with three, we have three timelines. Here's the top timeline. Time and the first event occurred January 1st, 1901, the very first day of the 20th century. That's the birthday of the Pentecostal movement. It's preceded in the 19th century by a movement called the Holiness Movement. And in the Holiness Movement, the idea was that you got a package of grace at salvation, but that was to get you to heaven but if you really wanted to have a victorious life, then there was a second work of grace that came after salvation. And so sometimes that was fairly simple and innocuous, and you just needed to uh, trust Christ to be saved and then dedicate your life to Jesus, and then you would be able to live the victorious Christian life. But in real true holiness theology, that got connected to the baptism by the Holy Spirit. So the second work of grace, they would equate to the baptism by the Holy Spirit. So there was a man that came out of the farms and the fields of Iowa by the name of Charles Parham. And he went to Topeka, Kansas. He had the call of Jesus, and he establishes a Bible institute in Topeka, Kansas. And it's Closing in on Christmas, he's going to leave for a couple of weeks on Christmas vacation, and he tells his students that they need to uh, do some studying on the baptism by the Spirit. He's a holiness preacher, and find out what the signs of the baptism by the Holy Spirit are. So when he comes back after Christmas, and it's, it's uh, close to New Year's, uh, he asked them what the results of their study are, and they say, well, what we've seen is that the sign of the baptism by the Spirit is speaking in tongues. 
And so they had a prayer meeting, a watch prayer meeting on New Year's Eve. Some of you probably don't recognize the term watch meeting, meeting, but that was an older term that was used, watching the new year come in. So they'd have a watch party or something of that nature. And so they went through the night, and either early the next morning or later after dawn, one of the students by the name of Agnes Osmond spoke in tongues. She was convinced it was Chinese. That tells us that they recognized at first that it was supposed to be a real human language. So they thought it was Chinese. They were all excited about that because they could go to China as missionaries. They, they truly believed that. But then when they found some Chinese-speaking people and they didn't understand a word she said, well, they, they realized that, oh, this must be a Holy Spirit language, and that's, that's where that came from. Well, he, the, he broke up his school not too long after that and sent his students uh, around the country to, uh, to carry the message that you could be baptized by the Spirit and speak in tongues. And he came to a, a town down on the Texas Gulf Coast called Houston, Texas. And he set up a Bible institute in uh, the Heights. And there he taught the Bible... But back there in the horrible days of segregation, uh, blacks could not come and sit in the classrooms with the whites. And so there was a one-eyed black preacher by the name of Willie J. Seymour who sat out in the hall and took notes. And Willie J. Seymour got the gift of the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. And then it wasn't long after that that he left and he went west, young man, and he ended up in Los Angeles at a mission down on Azusa Street where he taught this new doctrine. And in 1906, revival broke out in the Azusa Street mission and everybody started speaking in tongues. And that exploded, got, got, the word went all around the world and people came from Sweden and Norway and England and Japan and Australia and India came from all over to find out about how they could get this new spiritual power. And that's the birth of the Pentecostal movement. And the Pentecostal movement was called the first wave of the Holy Spirit. Now, it wasn't called that then, but later on, by the 1970s, they recognized that there had been more than one wave. So that's the first wave. And what distinguished it was they said tongues is the necessary sign of the baptism by the Holy Spirit. And they separated from their Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Episcopal churches and had their own denominations like the Pentecostal Church in America. One thing different about that was they denied the Trinity. That's why they were called Jesus-only Pentecostals. Now, others like the Assembly of God were basically like Baptists, except they uh, they spoke in tongues. So that's the first wave. Then in 1959... In Van Nuys, California, the rector of St. Mark's Episcopal Church spoke in tongues. And when he was praying from the pulpit, that must have upset some of those Episcopalians, but he didn't leave his denomination. He stayed there. So now you're going to have charismatic Episcopals and charismatic Lutherans and charismatic Baptists and charismatic Catholics and charismatic Presbyterians and charismatic whatnot. And so that's the charismatic movement, okay? 
they too believed that tongues, the sign of tongues was, I mean, tongues was a sign of the baptism by the Holy Spirit. And, but they continued and stayed in their denomination, whereas the Pentecostals left and started their own denomination. So now we have Pentecostals and we have Charismatics, and the technical term for all this is the Holiness Pentecostal Charismatic Movement, but that takes up too much room on the slide, so I, I don't, haven't done that. Then something happened in the 1970s. But before I get to that, I want to tell you about something else that took place. Uh, there was a very famous evangelist in America by the name of Charles Fuller. And Charles Fuller was solid in his theology, and he believed in the inerrancy and infallibility of God's Word, but he was a big name. And so there were some people who got together and said, we needed a seminary in Pasadena, California, and so can can you be part of it, and we'll make you kind of the figurehead president and we'll call it Fuller Theological Seminary. And it started off great, and great lasted for less than seven or eight years. And then they had various professors who started getting into various weird things, and they had a missions professor by the name of Donald McGavern. And in the early 60s, he brought in a young buck by the name of Peter Wagner. That's where we're headed, okay? So that's happening in the non-charismatic arena. So in the 70s, you get a late 60s, mid-60s, you had a spaced out, tripped out, young hippie, peacenik in uh, Haight-Asbury who's coming off of a bad trip and some evangelist got a hold of him and gave him the gospel and he got saved and had just the greatest experience in the world and went back and told his two roommates that he had found Jesus and Jesus found him and he was saved and they could be saved too and so they got saved and they started having a Bible study and telling all these other hippies about Jesus and that was the beginning of the Jesus movement. Okay, you've heard of Jesus Freaks. That all started right there. And then they he went on vacation. The guy's name was Lonnie Frisbee. And he went down to Southern California to go surfing and ran into this small little church in Costa Mesa called Calvary Chapel. And the pastor had been a part-time pastor, and then he went full-time. His name was Chuck Smith. And Chuck was, I've, I've interviewed Chuck. In fact, one of the three men that was one of those first three men later became an elder at Ray Stedman's church up in Palo Alto, California. Bray was a Dallas grad. But I interviewed that, one of those men, and I interviewed Chuck Smith. Chuck told me the rest of the story. And so Lonnie Frisbee brought all those hippies down from Haight-Asbury to Costa Mesa, and Calvary Chapel just exploded. And one of the things that came out of Calvary Chapel was the uh, whole contemporary Christian music movement was born there. And another thing that came out of there in the mid-60s was that by this time they had started Calvary chapels all over California, and they were spreading. Uh, they got up to around 350, 400 Calvary chapels across the nation. They were a quasi-denomination. And over the years they had a lot of problems with heretics popping up in their midst. And in fact, in the 90s, and you've got to give Chuck Smith a lot of credit, he was very conservative 
Even though he was ordained in a charismatic denomination, Amy Simple McPherson's Foursquare Gospel Church denomination, even though he was ordained in that denomination, he was a very laid-back person in his personality. He didn't go along for all this emotionalism and everything else, and people were always trying to get him to be more emotional, but he had a gut feeling that what these kids needed was the Bible. And he'd teach the Bible, pretty basic, but he'd teach the Bible five nights a week because all these kids were coming and Calvary chapels just blew up everywhere. Well, there was a Calvary chapel that was started, and I think it was up in Anaheim. I may be mistaken there. It's been a while since I've looked at some of this stuff. And they sent a guy who claimed to be, he had grown up as a Schofieldian dispensationalism, but he had his Holy Spirit experience And he went to pastor that church, and his name was John Wimber. And John Wimber uh, tells a story about how he wasn't a charismatic, and one day they were having prayer meeting and Bible study, and this guy came into his church that was all freaked out, long hair, hippie, and got up in the pulpit and said something and said, y'all are now slain in the spirit, and everybody fell down on the floor. And that guy was Lonnie Frisbee. Remember Lonnie Frisbee? He was that first Jesus freak back there in Haight-Asbury. He ended up getting AIDS and was arrested by a uh, Los Angeles vice officer for propositioning him in a restroom in a public park. He had an ignominious end. But um, that was that was Lonnie. So this is just, it, it just gets worse. And so uh, th- you get John Wimber, and he hooks up with Peter Wagner. This is where we've been headed. You have to understand all of that or you don't know what's going on. Peter Wagner was a young buck that got hired by Donald McGavern, and he's also kind of the grandfather of the whole church growth movement. So you know if the church growth movement came out of Peter Wagner's head, uh, it, it, ain't, it ain't good. And it's not. These people have influenced everybody from Rick Warren and every church growth person and purpose-driven whatever. So you know that has bad beginnings. So Peter Wagner is a missions professor and church growth professor at Fuller Seminary, and he hears about John Wimber, and they get hooked up together and have a course on signs and wonders that they teach at Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary just went down, really went downhill after that. But now Peter Wagner, and I don't have room for it on this chart, has said, we didn't go far enough in the third wave, because that's what this was called. And they emphasized power more than they did the baptism of the Spirit. In fact, I was in a workshop on the baptism of the Spirit, because I was investigating all of this, and I'd go go out and I'd stay with George Meisinger out in California. And um, he got me a two-hour interview with Chuck Smith to get the whole story. And then I went to this spiritual warfare conference with John Wimber. And so one of the workshops was on how to get the baptism by the Spirit. And the guy who led it uh, said, now we don't ever talk about the baptism of the Spirit because that's controversial. So we just tell people, do you want to just be uh, totally overpowered by the Holy Spirit? And everybody goes, yeah, 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 yeah. And so they get lied to and deceived, and the next thing they know, they're all falling on the ground. I, I, I just couldn't stand it. It was just horrible to go be in that kind of, kind of environment. 
But here's old Peter Wagner. Now he is one of the top guys with the, uh, I thought I'd change this slide. I just wanted to have the NAR up there. NAR is the New Apostolic Revival. That's where, where we are now. We're in the fourth wave. Uh, Peter Wagner was born August 15, 1930. He died October 21, 2016. He's been a big a missionary. He's got all kinds of stories about all kinds of demonic activity and spiritual warfare. Professor of Church Growth, Fuller Seminary, founder of the International Coalition of Apostles. See, what he said was, we didn't go far enough in the third wave. We have to have a restoration of what they call the five-fold ministry. That's in Ephesians 4, 10 and 11. You know what it says, apostles, prophets. What's next? Evangelists, pastors, and teachers. See, they have five. They can't, do, they can't exegete Greek very well. And so he says, we've got to restore the apostolic ministry. That's why it's called the New Apostolic Revival. Uh, our Reformation. He used that first phrase in 1996. And he says, we are now living in the midst of one of the most epical changes in the structure of the church that has ever been recorded. I like to call it the second apostolic age. Has three characteristics. First of all, they are restoring apostolic authority, which means they've restored apostles. They have restored prophetic authority so they can speak for God, and they are restoring dominion authority. Dominion is the idea that we're, it's related to post-millennialism, and we're going to bring in the kingdom. Now, a vast majority of churches in this country who are networked in this, the big megachurches, are all committed to this, these three things. One of their leaders out of Bethel Church in California is Bill Johnson, who wrote this book with Lance Wallnow, came out in 2013. It's called Invading Babylon, the Seven Mountain Mandate. This is the foundational doctrine of the Apostolic Reformation. They are post-millennial. The church brings in the kingdom. They believe in replacement theology. That means that the church has replaced Israel. It doesn't always lead to anti-Semitism, but that is the bed, the seedbed out of which uh, anti-Semitism comes. And their views are completely unconstitutional. They say the Seven Mountain Revelation helps us strategically identify different aspects of society so that cultural transformation can become a manageable task. See, what they want to do is transform culture according to their Seven Mountain view. All of us are called to at least one of these seven mountains, religion, arts, media, business, government, family, and education. As we begin taking land for our king, we will undoubtedly face great resistance. The third chapter of this book offers a profound teaching about taking spiritual ground by occupying the spiritual gates of our cities. Gates represent the spiritual powers, that is, demons, that rule over geographical areas. Notice that one of the authors is C. Peter Wagner. If I w- There are a lot of 
people who just don't know the Bible, that are ignorant, that are caught up in all of this kind of stuff. And if I was going to say that one person in this whole charismatic Pentecostal movement is truly evil, it would be Peter Wagner because of what he, the, his influence that he has had for, he had for 50 years. So these seven mountains are education. We have to take over education. We have to take over religion. We have to take over uh, families. We have to take over business, government, military, arts, entertainment, media. Now that all sounds good because they're conservative politically. Isn't that great? So this is what they're after. These are all aberrations. They are not doctrinally true. So they want to restore apostles. This was one of the things that uh, in Revelation 2.2, you had false apostles, and that, that in Ephesus they tested those who called themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And then restoration of the prophetic office. Uh, Revelation 2.20, the letter to Thyatira. But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And then dominion theology. Now, I want to wrap up here because we're almost out of time. But in dominion theology, they want to they want to bring in the kingdom. That's their whole endeavor. Now, some of you remember around, I can't, rem- I can't remember when it was, but it was around 2010, 2011, there was a gu- gubernatorial election in Texas, and leading up to it, there were these huge, huge uh, prayer conferences that were set up in the major cities of Texas. Uh, it was the last election that Rick Perry ran for, and so they were, all of these uh, um, prayer conferences were set up and they had celebrities and musicians and speakers and all of this stuff and at the very beginning I read names and I knew they were all this was all energized see they're getting their tentacles into government they were all energized by new apostolic uh, reformation people every one of them and so that was part of it but it doesn't stop there politically one of the top preachers in the New Apostolic Reformation is a reverend, I use that term facetiously, Paula White. Paula White, she was on President Trump's evangelical council. She is neck deep in New Apostolic Reformation theology, dominion theology, replacement theology, Restoration of the fivefold gift. That's Paula White. President Trump called her his pastor. Now, there were some good men that were also on that committee, but there were a number of new apostolic Reformation people who were part of that. And this is, this is the kind of thing. Paula White made big news, so I'm not telling tales out of but but Benny Hinn actually confessed on TV that he had had a four-year affair with Paula White. Benny Hinn's a big faith healer, and he's just as corrupt as any of them can be. So this 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 isn't just some biblical thing that they were worried about false teachers back then. This is what's going on all around us. You drive down the highway and you see some of these mega churches, not all of them, but some of them are just mired in heresy. 
And not only are they mired in heresy, they are getting their hooks into politicians because they sound very conservative and they uh, support all of the divine institutions, but they want dominion, they want power, and they are not, it's none of what they want fits the American Constitution. So that's an enemy that we have that's on the right, and they talk a good Christian talk. So we need to be aware of that. This stuff is all around us. Now, I'll talk more about other issues related to false teaching, but that gives you just one example of the level of heresy that is taking place, and it's been a growing problem for a 100 years, and they've been very close to the White House and very close to the uh, Capitol in Austin, And we need to really be in prayer. There is true biblical spiritual warfare taking place. The angelic revolt is alive and well in this country. And we need to be in prayer about those things. Father, thank you for the fact that we can study your word, that we can be warned of false teachers. Every generation has had them. And we need to know the signs. We need to be protected by Uh, the truth of your word that gives us the information we need to spot this stuff that goes on around us. Father, we just need to pray that that you will protect this nation. Uh, Some of these people have insidious influence uh, in the White House, and for many people in this country, uh, they are the face of evangelicalism. And uh, this is just a horrible thing to have happened and to have destroyed that particular word. So, Father, we pray for us that we might be steadfast, not get distracted by all the garbage that goes on around us, and that we may be reminded that we are here with a mission to give people the gospel, to grow to spiritual maturity, and to uh, manifest your glory to the angels and to those around us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.